Thank you. Thank you, Janelle. Thank you, everybody, who was so... I mean, I, that's an amazing thing when there's more hands than there were backpacks to be able to hand out. That's pretty wonderful. So I appreciate you guys so much. Uh, when Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous sermon, the I Have a Dream sermon, back in 1963, he said those famous words that, that everyone will always remember, that I've been to the mountaintop, right? And, and that phrase, I've been to the mountaintop, that's not something that usually needs to be unpacked for anybody. I mean, even if a person grew up on a, on a low-lying coastal town their whole life, they still would understand what that means when they say, I've been to the mountaintop. Uh, the image of a mountaintop runs through literature. It runs all through scripture, as a matter of fact. Oftentimes, mountaintops are places where human experience comes in contact with the divine. And then it becomes also symbolic as well of... Uh, describing those times in our lives where we catch glimpses of some transcendent glory of what could be, of what could possibly be if we were you know, willing to, to uh, reach out for it. Now, as people of faith, I'm sure that we've probably all had experiences and times that we would consider mountaintop experiences, times when when we feel suddenly like we've moved into some transcendent moment, uh, maybe in a worship service somewhere or, uh, you know, where, where it seems like the world around us recedes for just a moment and we brush against the glory of God. I know I've had those experiences in my own life. This morning, we're going to read about the ultimate mountaintop experience. Maybe it's the very one that that uh, coined the phrase uh, uh, as we continue in our study in the Gospel of Luke today. And if you have a Bible and if you'd like to follow along with us, um, uh, you'll head to Luke chapter 9, please. Last week, as we've been going through this, we've been, we've been working our way through Luke, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Um, just out of curiosity, is it, does it feel dark out here to everybody? Is it hard to see or anything? Or? Okay, it's just these in my eyes now. I just want to make sure that everything is cool. So uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We've been exploring the story of Jesus and, and, and how he has come on the scene and the difference that it's made, uh, not only in, in the hearts of those who believed on him, but the difference that it makes in, in the world around us. Last week, we read about a significant moment in this narrative where uh, Jesus is revealed to, to his disciples as the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for. All through her history, Israel's been waiting for this special someone to show up. And in the days of first century Palestine, I mean, that was at a fever pitch. Everybody was so uh, anticipating the Messiah showing up. And so in that in that section that we read as Jesus is dialoguing with his disciples, he asks them point blank, who do you think I am? And the answer comes back, we believe you're the Messiah. So then right on the heels of that revelation, Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection. Then he told his followers that, oh, by the way, you also have a cross that you're going to be carrying as you follow me. So we considered how very differently the kingdom of God is at work in the world in contrast to the way human kingdoms operate and advance and governments work. How God overcomes this world is through sacrificial love, never through coercive force. And the whole section finished off with Jesus talking about returning 
with the glory of his father, which I'm sure was curious to the disciples because they were thinking, returning from where? What are you talking about? And, and, and some in their own group, he said, we're going to see the glory of God's kingdom before they die, which then leads us into the section that we're going to read here today in chapter 9, uh, an account of three of Jesus' disciples seeing that glory, just like he said they would. And so if you're there in Luke chapter 9, we're going to begin starting with verse 28. It reads, About eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed, and his clothes became dazzlingly white. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see, and they were speaking about his exodus from the world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Okay, Luke says about eight days later, and, and in the original Greek, the speculative word about is in there. So Luke is admitting that he doesn't know exactly when this took place because you know, full disclosure, Matthew and Mark both say that this happened six days later. But remember, Luke wasn't there. So he's just saying, you know, I wasn't there for about eight days. I don't know. Does it really matter? To which we say, no, it really doesn't matter. Uh, uh, we presume later when they're saying later, they mean from this moment when Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah and predicted that some would see its glory. So Jesus takes Pete, Jimmy and Jack up on a, some unnamed mountain. And we, if you're like me, you're like, why those guys? Like, why them? And we don't know. Like, those three get singled out several different times, and we don't have a real clear picture or, or decent enough understanding as to why it would have been them. Some have suggested that they were special and inner circle with Jesus. Others have suggested that maybe they were always the ones in trouble, and you just had to keep an eye on them. You stick close to me, because I don't know what you'd be up to. Because uh, like I've said before, if you'd have ever seen me when I was in school, you'd have thought I was the teacher's pet because I was always right close to the teacher. But that was only because she couldn't trust me if uh, I was out of her sight. Either way, he takes these guys up there and, and they're the ones who witness this thing that while they're there, while they're up on this mountaintop and they're praying, Jesus is transformed. This event has been called the transfiguration. The, the word means a, a change in appearance. Uh, the, the, his physicality begins to be altered in front of them, and he begins to, as it's described there, shine like a light. Suddenly, it says that Moses and Elijah are with him, talking to him. And I've always wondered, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? It's not like, you know, it's not like you had a yearbook somewhere that you can go back to, oh, that was Moses. So I don't know. Maybe they had those little name tags that say, hello, my name is Moses. I have no idea, uh, but this is a big deal that these two are there in the story because they represent the, the law and the prophets, what, what encompasses the Hebrew Bible, which is indicating that Jesus, in coming on the scene, is not doing something independent or different from everything that's gone before him. He's actually a part of that same story. He's communicating with what came before him. He's in sync with everything that's gone down. And they were speaking to Jesus about his upcoming exodus. And I love it that the New Living Translation even puts that word in there. A lot of translations will say talking about his departure. But in the Greek, it is the word exodus, and it means the exodus. It's, it's, it, we're going to see that there's a lot of parallels here in what's happening, in, especially in this section, with what happened during the exodus and in the story of Moses. This event is a divine authentication 
of Jesus's ministry and messiahship, I guess we could say. I don't know if messiahship is a word, but it is now. Uh, he's been declared to be, by, uh, to be the messiah by his followers, and now the veil is being lifted in this story, and the nature of Christ's glory is being revealed in this really dramatic fashion. And while we can look at this and and see this as a glimpse of Jesus' true divine nature, what's happening here, as I said, parallels Moses' experience in the early stages of Israel's redemptive history. So we see that there's like a pattern being repeated here. And when we see those patterns, uh, Professor Tim Mackey has pointed out, those are kind of like hyperlinks to let us know that something, you know, in the story has been building towards this thing. We can look and and see what was happening. Moses, we know in his story, went up on the mountaintop to to meet with God. And when he went up on the Mount Sinai, he took with him Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, three guys, just like Jesus takes three guys up on the mountain. In Exodus Exodus 34, 29, Moses' skin shines so brightly that, you know, they're saying like, put a blanket over that because we can't even look at it. It scares us. Uh, and then in, it tells us that in Exodus 24, a cloud descends on the mountain and then speaks out of it. And we're going to read in the next few verses in this account, the exact same thing happens here. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, he told Israel that a prophet like himself was coming one day, a Messiah. And all of these happening, all of these events happening here in this transfiguration are meant to validate Jesus's claim as that prophet. These are hyperlinks pointing back to Israel's redemptive story and letting us know there's a redemptive story that's taking place here. And it, it coincides with what Moses was doing. It, re, it affirms that Jesus is, in fact, the one that Moses said was going to be coming, who's like me, that Jesus is this Messiah they've been waiting for. So this is also telling us that a new exodus is taking place through Jesus, indicating that the first exodus in Israel's history was simply a type of something that Jesus was going to come and fulfill in reality, in, in, its, in its wholeness. Um, so those are the theological, you could say Christological uh, implications of this event. There's really a lot going on in this account, but it's also important that as we read this, as we do at any point in the scripture, we're not just reading it to see what it said, past tense, but we want to see what it's saying to us in the present tense. What is the message we're supposed to glean from this? What is this account in here intending for us to pick up? It's included in all three synoptic gospels. So we need to pick up the implications of this for our own lives. And the one thing that has always struck me about this event, and I believe that all three synoptic gospels describe it this way, is that it says in there that Jesus is physicality his face begins to shine and that makes sense to us we'd be thinking well yeah yeah of course you know he would be shining he's glorious you know he's otherworldly and all of that but it also says that his clothes transform as well become dazzlingly white which is interesting to me because we don't know of anything that was special about his clothes there's nothing there's nothing in the text that ever indicated that his clothes were you know bought at like discount messiah wear or something like that that we you know his clothes were probably just the normal clothes that everybody else would be wearing which i find to be a fascinating and really encouraging detail in this whole story because we realize then that god's kingdom brings glory through common things I just think it's awesome that Jesus' normal kick-around-the-countryside clothes got transformed as well. 
because they were wrapped around Jesus. It's possible that we make the mistake of thinking that the only place that we'll ever get caught up in in God's glory or in those mountaintop experiences is when we get to a church meeting or some special worship service or someplace special. And, and look, those experiences are fine. I mean, we, you know, that can happen when we're gathered together as the church or in a special worship service. In fact, we should anticipate that happening. But let's not forget our everyday life. Let's not forget the clothes that were on Jesus because God is, is present in all of it all aspects of life. It's not just, you know, God shows up when we go to church or or something like that. God is present in in all of these things. And and he's as present in the mundane things of life as he is in these transcendent moments that we may experience. And I see that in the details about Jesus' clothes in this story. The text makes the point of mentioning that these clothes changed appearance they became dazzling white. Common things just don't remain common when they're connected to Jesus. Uh, ordinary lives are no longer just ordinary lives when they're wrapped around Jesus. Common events and circumstances take on a whole new meaning when they're submitted to and formed around Jesus. Common people, like like you and I, like, I mean... There's probably, I I can't say this like I know, but I mean, there's probably nothing terribly spectacular uh, about any of us that makes us famous or noteworthy. Anybody here have a monument built after them? Okay, so like, you know, there's nothing necessarily that, that, that we have that would make us necessarily noteworthy, except that our lives in step with Jesus are now the conduit through which the kingdom of God's glory is manifest into this world it gets revealed. And I love how the message, it's very similar to the thing that, that uh, Paul was trying to tell us about our everyday lives. And I love the way the message words it in Romans 12.1. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. That's what he's called us to. It's not just a, you know, it's not just a thing that we do once in a while to be able to get our God time in and, and, and you know, either feel better about ourselves or, or whatever it may be. It's remembering that as followers of Jesus, everything about life now has taken on a new meaning, something far more significant than we could have ever imagined. All of our experiences, good and bad, mundane and exciting, all of it can be the place that shows off what Jesus is really like to this world. We don't have to be somebody special. We don't have to go to a special preacher uh, or, or a priest or observe some religious rituals in order to experience God's glory. God's glory can be revealed through anything we do. God shows off his glory through common things and common people. We just need to, to, to stick close to Jesus and, and see what we may experience through it all. Okay, the story goes on. Verse 32. Peter and the others had fallen asleep. When they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with them. As Moses and Elijah were starting to leave, Peter, not even knowing what he was saying, blurted out, Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But even as he was saying this, a cloud overshadowed them and terror gripped them as the cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son 
my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice finished, Jesus was there alone. And they didn't tell anyone at the time what they had seen for obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah, smoke on the mountain. I get it. I get it. Okay, so uh, Jesus, this is, a, this is a, I love this part of the story. So Jesus is deep into prayer. And the disciples take that as a cue to nap. Uh, I mean, it just, it just goes on to tell me that these are my people. Because uh, what is it about prayer that makes us so sleepy? I was just, I was meeting with some pastors the other day. And we had a moment where we were just going to be quiet and, you know, still before the Lord to see what we heard. And that's a great thing. We should do that. But man, I can't tell you how fast I was wanting to just nod over and hit my head on the table as we were sitting there. I don't know why that is i obviously there's probably forces at work here to try to discourage that but man i can can't tell you how many times i'm like i'm gonna really pray about this issue i'm gonna really get serious i'm gonna lay out prostrate 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 before laying out flat uh before the lord and uh you know, I'm really going to get serious about this and pray only to wake up, you know, later on with drool on my face. I was like, man, that was some intense prayer. It knocked me out. But good old Peter, he's the best because I relate to him so much. Peter just wakes up and he gets caught up in this moment and just starts talking before his brain has engaged. And he's so stoked at what he's witnessing and this rush of uh, emotion and feeling all over. He just blurts out, this is so cool. We just need to stay here from now on. I'll build a little hut for you and I'll build a little hut for you and one for you. I love how the fisherman is telling the carpenter (laughs) about his, his construction plans. The Peter encounters God's glory. And his first thought is to start a building project, which is kind of typical. Uh, anyway, but, but, but now actually the three shelters that he's talking about building are probably pointing towards the Feast of Tabernacles. That's more than likely what's in view in his thinking from Leviticus 23. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles was a holiday in Israel where the Israelites had to build temporary shelters and live in them for a period of seven days because it was a reminder to them of the Exodus, how God brought them out of of bondage and led them through the wilderness and and took them into the promised land. And by Jesus' day, the Feast of Tabernacles had taken on even more significant meaning. Uh, They were looking at it as the end of exile, when this exile that they knew was over, that Messiah had come and they would enter in to the, the promised land relationship with God that they felt that they were missing at that time. So Peter wasn't actually just like blathering nonsense at this point. It's just that he misunderstood what was happening and what the glory that was being revealed there was, was, was indicating. And I think that we can glean another insight for ourselves in this as we're looking at this and, you know, beyond, moving beyond just the theological implications of it, what are the practical implications? And we realize from this that sometimes we misunderstand the glory of God. Peter saw Moses and Elijah, and again, I'm not sure how he recognized them, but he saw them with Jesus and his glory, and he jumped to to a conclusion as to what he should do in response to that glory. More than likely, it was something that he wanted to do. It's more than likely something that he felt the pressure to try to accomplish or do or, or make happen. And so it really comes down to our very human tendency of wanting a God that we can control and manage and use for our purposes. Peter saw this trio and read a meaning into it and presumed that he would have to stay up on this mountaintop 
while Messiah went down and vanquished all the enemies, uh, you know, from up there. And this isn't, isn't me picking on Peter. Uh, you know, we, we do this. This is something we're prone to as humans. We're like children trying to scoop up the ocean into, into a little bucket. We're finite beings trying to comprehend the mind and the heart of an infinite God. So we're prone to this. But Peter misunderstands because he was trying to import the meaning of God's activity in the past into the present. And that doesn't always work. Uh, Just because this was something that God had done in the past and and revealed this glory with the, you know, all of that uh, in the past in Moses' experience doesn't mean that it was exactly the same thing this time around. It's, you know, there's a lot of ways in which we do that. There's There's multiple examples of how we as God's people will tend to misunderstand or misapply what God's done in the past. It's like when people will take the promises from the Old Testament made to the nation of Israel and apply them to America. That's misunderstanding God's activity. Those promises were for Israel and could only have a modern application with the church, not a a geographical nation like the U.S., Peter was trying to attach this glorious revelation about Jesus to the law and the prophets, what had come before him, making three equal shelters for Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And that, I think, was the biggest misunderstanding of all. And God clearly heads off any illusions that Moses and Elijah are going to be playing any further role in these events as they're unfolding. Because while Peter was saying this stuff, He got cut off by the cloud descending down on him and this voice booming out, this is my son, the chosen one, the Messiah. Listen to him. And this is an important command. And it identifies for Jesus' disciples, which includes us as well right now, our responsibility in this. Pay attention to Jesus. In all of the things happening in the world and all the things taking place, pay attention to Jesus in all of this. There's no need for three shelters. We, we need to listen to only one voice, and that's of Christ. This is telling us something actually very important, that God's glory is focused through Christ alone. That means all of Scripture has to be read and understood through the lens of Jesus and what it was that he did. All of the Old Testament narratives and teachings lead us to the person of Christ And so with Moses and Elijah standing right there, God said, listen to him, pointing at Jesus, to Jesus. And Moses and Elijah disappear, leaving only Jesus. There's a lot in that that we're supposed to take. The opening statement of of John's gospel says, so the word became human and made his home among us, and we have seen his glory, like what's happening here in this event, the glory of the Father's one and only Son, And in John chapter 1, he makes it clear the main purpose of that gospel is to, to, you know, something we pointed out as we taught through it, was to show that Jesus is the fullest revelation of God that's been given to us. That is, if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. You've heard me say this before, right? If we want to know what God is up to, we look at what Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 1 seems to indicate that Jesus is the final revelation of God. That means that everything in the biblical narrative has to be understood from the perspective of who Jesus is. 
and, and, and what he taught and what he did and how he sacrificed himself and how he rose uh, in this, this new beginning of, of being alive, this new form of life. So don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean that we dis- dismiss or disregard the Old Testament. One really famous preacher, uh, and I got no problem with her or anything, but he did just say, let's, you know, let's just disconnect ourselves from the Old Testament. It's just too much. Um, but I, I don't think that works. Uh, it's all part of the same narrative. You know, this is, so I'm not trying to denigrate the Old Testament at all, the Hebrew Bible, but it's the early stages of God's reintroduction of himself to an amnesiac human race. So there, there's, you know, it, the Old Testament is part of God's revelation of himself, but it's important that we always approach it with the view that Christ is the fullest revelation of who God is, right? You follow what I'm saying in any of this or am I, am I losing y'all? I'm saying in this, <laughs> what do you mean, Rob? What I mean is, this is hard to explain, but uh, when we come to the parts of the Hebrew Bible that may either disturb us or that we try to emulate uh, improperly, like the violence or the anger or the seeming you know, vindictiveness that comes across. And you, you can't read the Old Testament without seeing that stuff. We've got to be honest and real about that. We've got to recognize that those things were simply steps along the lengthy progression of God's self-revelation to human beings who had forgotten who he was and who they are. And so it all has to be processed through the reality of who Jesus is and his revelation about God's heart and God's heart towards humanity. Moses and Elijah had their place in the progression as the story went along, but they disappear when it comes to listening to Jesus. And you notice that in the story. Moses and Elijah were standing right there. God pointed to Jesus and said, listen to him. Moses and Elijah were vital in preparing the way But Jesus is the one who finishes the job. Jesus is the one who brings it home, the reality of who God is. Now, the thing is, listening to Jesus also means that that Jesus has the highest authority in in our lives. And I'm speaking to us who've uh, who've submitted our lives to Jesus, who we, we call ourselves and we claim to be Christ followers. You know, if a person's sitting there thinking, I'm not so sure I know what I think about Jesus, that's, that's fine. You think about that. You continue that thought process. But to those of us who've claimed this, this place in life as followers of Christ, then Christ has to be the highest authority in our lives. And listen, here's the thing. We live in a very pluralistic culture that, that longs for spiritual examples. And, and like Peter, we seem to want as many little huts to be built as we possibly can get in a row. Uh, in, in fact, we, we seem to get a, a lot of joy out of that. I'll take a little from this religious tradition and the philosophy from that and a dash of these ethics over here. Our culture tries to assemble a sort of like a religious hall of fame uh, from as many religious traditions as possible, all in honor to our commitment to this vague sense of spirituality that, that permeates our culture. People will readily uh, uh, call themselves spiritual, but there is rarely anything tangible connected to that. Well, it's spiritual, Rob. Why would it be tangible? But you know what I mean. Anything that you can actually grasp a hold of or, or, or you know, build a, a life on. Now, 
I'm saying that not to say that there is no insight or truth to be found in other places. Certainly there is. Not all truth is... Everything that is in the Bible is truth. Not all truth is contained in the Bible. There are mathematic truths that you're not necessarily going to find explicitly explained in the Bible. So there are truths that are outside of the biblical revelation, but we believe that the Bible is speaking truth to us. Um, but when it comes to a competing voice, you know, there, we can say that there are truths and insights to be found somewhere else, but when, if it comes to a competing voice, it, if it comes to a choice between what Jesus represents over here and what feels good over here, For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we've got to come back to this command from the cloud. Listen to him. This is my son. Listen to him. And this is is going to be applicable to everything. This is applicable to the culture around us, as I've described. But this is applicable to politics and all kinds of things. There are lots of competing voices out there that would like to tell us that, man, it's time to you know, be like the prophets of old and call down fire or whatever. But Jesus is the son. And we have to listen to him when it comes to these things and when it comes to our attitudes and how it is that we carry ourselves into this world and how it is that we're representing Jesus into this world. The voice from heaven didn't ask us to build a booth for Jesus alongside of the others. The heavenly voice announces, in essence, that Jesus transcends all other voices. No matter what we may learn from other voices, we know that Jesus is the revelation of God. And that has to be the the final word for us as his followers. And that, listen... I'm well aware, standing up here, that can sound very narrow and limiting. Um, But I will also say that as someone who has spent his whole life trying to listen to Jesus through his word and through my heart as I listen for him, I'm convinced that one lifetime is not enough to do this properly. It it takes more than that. This is nothing limiting at all. I've got everything I can handle just with the simplest of commands to love God and love others. That's taken forever. I don't even hardly have time for anything else, much, you know, less, you know, any other booths out there that they want to be built. This is an ongoing adventure for me to continue listening, to discover, to learn from that voice, from the voice of the one who reveals to us God's heart of sacrificial love for the human race. God's heart to make all things right again. I think that's a wonderful pursuit in life. And I'm deeply convinced that we can only understand God's glorious plan through Jesus, through what it is that he taught, through what it is that he did, through the commission that he gives us by his spirit. His voice, I believe, is the one leading us home. So this is the lesson, I believe, that we can take from the transfiguration of Jesus, that all that God has done or is doing is found in Jesus, in what it is that he represents to us of God. Sometimes it's, it's hard to understand what God's up to, so, you know, we have to speculate sometimes, but in our speculation, let's keep a loose grip on them so as not to miss the glory of God or to, to misapply what it is that God's doing. And in our lives, let's keep our eyes open for his glory because sometimes it's found in very unexpected places. 
And let's not miss those moments of glory by assuming our lives are too mundane or too common. Let's keep our eyes and hearts open for anything that Jesus may want to do, even through the most common things in life. Because who knows what he may be wanting to do in our lives, in our hearts, and in this world through us. Right on? Oh, very cool. Well, why don't you stand up with me, if you will, please?